About Empathy is a podcast that focuses on patient, caregiver, and healthcare provider experiences with serious illness. We are now in our third season. Thank you for listening. Week by week, we hope these engaging conversations inspire you to have empathic and compassionate interactions. I'm Dr. Irene Ying, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Dr. Dori Zekaracia, Dr. Giovanna Siriani. We are physicians working in palliative care and psychosocial oncology at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Center in Toronto. This podcast gives voice to the patient, caregiver, and healthcare provider experience. By reflecting on their stories, we hope to improve our practice and yours. The journey to sobriety took many detours for Patrick. What he originally chalked up to experimentation with drugs and alcohol became a regular occurrence. Crystal meth binges would end with the realization that Patrick was slowly losing himself. In these moments of clarity, he would reach out for help, starting with psychiatric care, then to a harm reduction program, and finally to a recovery program. Patrick is here to tell us about how he navigated the healthcare system to help him recover from his addictions. Thank you for coming to share your experience, Patrick. Thank you for having me. So can you tell us a little bit about during your recovery process, Mm -hmm. do you remember an interaction that you had with your healthcare team that impacted you and your recovery? I've had so many. The one that really sticks out to me in terms of a turning point was I struggled with crystal meth and alcohol. Okay. Uh, I mean, pretty much everything. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I said my motto was like, what is that? I'll have two. So things were escalating Mm -hmm. more and more, experimenting with IV drug use. And I had this moment where I was in a situation with a bunch of people I didn't trust, really know. I thought something had gone wrong in the process. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought I was going to die. Like I was like, I've done something really bad. I don't want to be too graphic, but they always say if you're like injecting drugs, say if it burns. If it burns, mm-hmm. that's really bad. And it was like, uh-oh, there's a burn. Yeah, just this burning sensation in my arm. And I was like, am I going to die? I took myself to the emergency room, St. Mike's emergency room. And I went up and I told them what was going on. I was so scared and sad and embarrassed. They looked at my arm and she just said like, you're going to be okay. But we'd like if you waited to see a doctor just to make sure. Mm -hmm. She was very kind. I sat and waited. And it was like that moment of realizing (laughs) where my life had taken me. I have a really close relationship with my mother. She would like show up if I had a cough. And I thought, I can't call her. I can't call anyone. Mm. I'm just like in this place alone. I felt like this huge drain and suck of resources. I'm like, I'm here just because I can't get my shit together. It was just incredibly lonely. I waited and I talked to a doctor and everything was fine. It was a terrible and life-changing moment. And I certainly appreciate any of those interactions I had with people where there was no added layer of judgment or stigma Mm. or anything. Like I was going through my own process of that. Like (laughs) I was doing all that work for you, so don't worry. (laughs) And it was kind of that moment that I decided I needed to go to rehab. Okay. I'm so grateful and and lucky to have had parents that stepped up and paid for it. Then there were a lot more options for me to find some place that I felt comfortable going to, Mm -hmm. as opposed to, as far as I had understood, there was only kind of one that was covered by OHIP in Toronto. And there's this really long waiting list that's all of these months long where I was able to go 
you know, within about a week or so. Wow. Wow. I wanted to wait till after Christmas, so we timed it, but um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it sounded like that was your first visit to the Emerge for something related to drug use? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And it sounded like it was overall a neutral, positive experience. Definitely wasn't a negative experience for you, other than the fact that obviously you were really worried about your own well-being. Yeah, I mean, it was... <laughs> I wouldn't describe it as a positive experience. Okay, sorry. Maybe I, I put that wrong. I just wanted to... But no, but like yeah. in hindsight, mm -hmm. I'm really happy that it happened. Okay. So I understand, like, it's like yes and no. Right. It was a powerful yeah. experience. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's I a think. nice way of putting it. Mm -hmm. Further along in sort of your recovery journey, was mm -hmm. there a negative experience that you had with the healthcare system that someone did something you wish they had done a little bit differently? Right. This was near the beginning of the troubles. <laughs> I went to university in the States. So I was there for four years. I, you know, was doing well, was really happy. Drugs and alcohol were definitely picking up in my life, mm -hmm. but there was also kind of like contentment in other areas. So I think that kind of kept it at bay. So I had moved back to Toronto and just felt a little directionless and starting over when I didn't want to. And so then I started to get really depressed and the drinking and the drugs were starting to increase in my life. Mm. And I saw my original GP and not to drag him, but I came forward that I thought I was depressed and I wanted to speak to someone. What I am responsible for, I don't think I'm ever very good at the questionnaires. Like the like, you know, are on a scale from one to 10, are you this or that? Because I also have anxiety so that I get nervous. <laughs> <laughs> then I'm answering that I'm 100% fine. You know, I was, I guess, in maybe in the mid range at that point. And he said to me, I can put you on antidepressants. He's like, talking to someone is really kind of just in the movies, you know, sitting on the couch and speaking with someone. Controversial opinion from him. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, oh, really? He's like, yeah, I mean, you know, psychologists are really expensive. Modern treatment for depression is more medication. And I was like, oh, okay, I guess medication seems fine. Mm. I'm like, but I would really like to talk to someone. So he mentioned, well, you know, I can refer you to a social worker. Now, this is not my field. My mm. only understanding of a social worker is from pop culture. So I'm like, but I'm not like an at-risk child who's being evaluated if I need to be taken out of my home. That yes. was my understanding of what a social worker was. So I was really reluctant. I'm like, well, I thought that was that person in high school or, you know, whatever. So I said no initially. So that would be one where I would love to go back and mm -hmm. like kind mm -hmm. of shake him you know maybe a few more questions a little yeah. bit more concern at least on my end i feel like if i'm making an appointment to be like yeah. i'm not okay that's it's so much more than a red flag because mm -hmm. there's so much lead up to that moment like yeah. there's so much internal processing and confusion of like am i aren't i am i okay am i fine should i just kind of keep rolling like whatever then all builds up into making that appointment and having that conversation, then all of that second guessing that already exists in your mind, because that's the nature of depression and anxiety, uh, yeah. kicks it into high gear when someone's like, oh, well, you know, you can take these pills that might make you feel better. Sure, I'm all for antidepressants, but like, 
maybe take some time to explain mm. it a bit more mm-hmm. and yeah. and talk about like, what do you want to talk to someone about? Right. Here are some of the resources. Here's how it yeah. works. Explain mm-hmm. a bit more. Yeah. Do you remember someone doing that for you, Patrick? Like the time where you felt, ah, this is what I was looking for? Yes, I do. As you mentioned, kind of in the intro, I had a couple of kicks mm-hmm. at the can. My first foray into recovery was through a harm reduction program mm-hmm. with CAMH. Mm-hmm. Parts of it are a blur, but what's been huge for me, I'm a gay man. Mm-hmm. Finding resources for LGBTQ plus mm-hmm. people, that's been where I found my safe haven mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. So going to CAMH and then being connected with what they had then was the Rainbow Program. It was like a weekly meeting. That was the first time I had ever out loud said I was a crystal meth addict. Mm-hmm. Like I said yeah. it in a room and I was like, oh my God, now it's real. Mm-hmm. And having counselors there who again when when addiction's a disease of isolation and to have people say like no 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 like we understand you're not crazy you're not broken like we've seen this before Mm -hmm. we have some tools that can help you i didn't ever feel judged and Mm -hmm. i did feel challenged which i very much appreciate you know now even though I practice an abstinence-based mm-hmm. recovery program, I wasn't willing to go into a program that was telling me I couldn't drink. That was a big one for me because mm. I was like, I, okay, we can address the crystal meth, but I'm not going to stop drinking. Mm-hmm. So I needed that kind of that first stage yeah. of let's see if we can manage mm-hmm. it. Let's unpack this mm-hmm. a little. Back then they had an inpatient program. Mm-hmm. So I did that for, I think the inpatient was 21 days. It was still rainbow program specific. I just remember the counselor saying, I've never seen anyone succeed at harm reduction with crystal meth. Maybe you'll be the first one. So I didn't feel like they were giving me this unrealistic expectation that, you know, I was just going to be a casual meth user. Mm. It's a pretty intense drug to come off of. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that would be one where I felt, I felt very seen Mm -hmm. (laughs) and both encouraged and challenged. And then when did you know, because you said ultimately now you practice like an abstinence Mm. approach, right? right? So how did you then make that jump from going more from harm reduction to abstinence? Yeah. So I was doing aftercare with CAMH and we would have our weekly meetings and I kept on hitting this roadblock where it would be like I would be sober from crystal meth for about a month. Maybe I'd come up to two months. And then I would relapse. And that was, that kept on happening. Oh God, it was so bad. <laughs> it was so brutal. Just because I remember them asking me in the group, you know, they try to keep it positive. They're like, well, mm. what did you learn from it this mm-hmm. time? What did you learn? And after a while, I was like, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't learn anything. Like, th- this is the same shit every time. I was going to ask, how did that feel for you? The feeling of relapse? What were the emotions that, uh, that would come through for you? I mean, certainly shameful Mm. embarrassment that very quickly can turn into resentment. Mm. I could be very defensive. I felt like I would kind of weaponize my pain. Like I was like, I'm struggling. Like, you know, this is part of it, you know, and I could very quickly use it as part of my manipulation. I I was just like so directionless. Mm. I didn't really know what I was doing. And for me, I think the hugest thing, again, I was not willing to look at my alcohol consumption Mm -hmm. and wasn't for lack of trying from the counselor. Like they'd say like, you know, okay, well, 
you know, I mean, you were drinking. Uh, and I was like, that's not what we're talking about. <laughs> but then how did you come to that realization then that the alcohol was also contributing? Yeah, so I was just in this pattern going into this group being like, oh, it happened again. And mm. then I just stopped going. I describe recovery and certain things as different like tethers to reality. And that was a, a tether that I, I was like cutting tethers as I kind of went deeper and deeper in. You know, shortly after was when I found myself at the emergency room that I mentioned mm. at St. Mike's. Okay. It was the decision to go to rehab. I remember saying to my mom when I was asking her to pay for it, I said, but if you think I'm going to quit drinking, you can keep your money. Oh. Which is lively. Ah. Just, <laughs> just very sweet and grateful. But... I had this moment the last time I drank, which is my sobriety day still, which is December 27th, 2016. Yay. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I knew I was going to rehab. We had gone away for Christmas. You know, I hadn't done meth for a couple of weeks because I could kind of pull it together sometimes for like big events. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I just woke up so hungover, so anxious. I knew I was going to rehab in a day or two. And I just thought like, yeah, I could be done, mm -hmm. I think. I hate this feeling. I was too anxious to go downstairs and open presents. Like, mm. I mean, you're opening gifts. Like, <laughs> what, yeah. what's going to go wrong here? <laughs> you're like getting stuff. It was that moment that I considered it. I went to the treatment program to a rehab just around where we're recording this right now mm -hmm. called Bellwood. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it started to shift. I considered it. Mm -hmm. That was because you had that feeling like, I think I'm done with this, with feeling like this and with this experience. That was part of the considering it. Yeah, just a moment of, I could be okay to not do this again. Well, Patrick, I could listen to you talk about your experience for hours. Yes. You're such a good speaker. Thank oh, you thank for sharing you. the story with us. We usually like to end each session with asking our guests the question, if only they knew. So is there something about your experience mm -hmm. that you wish that, you know, for all the learners who are listening to us, they knew and they can take into their practice when they become nurses, physicians, so forth? I guess I would hope people could practice patience mm -hmm. it's so challenging and like i know personally how unlikable and frustrating an addict can be now i get to work with people who are in early sobriety and mm -hmm. stuff and it's like we're nightmares we are <laughs> nightmares and some of that is the fog lifting there's the paranoia there's the psychosis and the defensiveness and all of that stuff but there are so many things in our brains that are trying to take us out of mm -hmm. practicing any kind of sobriety like you know early on i was always looking for a reason to walk out the door mm. so i guess trying as hard as you can to not give someone a reason <laughs> to walk right. out the door mm, yeah we never know who support is going to be for us mm. where you're going to feel seen i think providing resources where people can find their tribe mm -hmm. in a way that was huge for me finding lgbtq plus meetings mm. working with counselors like being in a rehab where pretty quickly essentially the gay therapist found me and pulled me in to like have a conversation and it was like, oh my God, I'm not alone here. Mm -hmm. Like I feel yeah. you kind of get it. So I know not everyone is going to be super well versed in the ins and outs of 
marginalized communities, mm-hmm. you know, at least for me, like the gay male experience with crystal meth addiction, which is like a huge problem in the city. Mm-hmm. So directing people to resources that help them, patience, yeah, and I guess just compassion. <laughs> That's really helpful. I think, like, correct me if I'm wrong, but what I'm hearing is like the person that, you know, as a physician we're seeing who's using drugs that's not the person that they want to be no right no. and i think it's important to remember that that they want to be a different person but the where they are in their lives right now this is their coping mechanism yeah. and so just trying to keep that in mind too when you're trying to help yeah and they don't even know who that person is mm. like we don't even know what we are like without this problem mm. in addiction you normalize so much insanity we are lost truly lost thank you so much patrick it was wonderful talking to you today thank you so much for having me you're listening to about empathy we're going to take a short break to tell you about how the show is supported and we'll be right back the third season of about empathy has been funded through donations to the palliative care team via the sunnybrook foundation sunnybrook is committed to patient engagement and care By partnering with Sunnybrook, we hope that this podcast embeds patient and family experiences in all teaching and learning. To learn more about the education initiatives at Sunnybrook, visit sunnybrook.ca. About Empathy is recorded at Wellspring. Wellspring Cancer Support Foundation is a network of community-based support centers offering professionally-led programs and services to help people living with cancer and those who care for them. No referral is necessary, and Wellspring programs are offered free of charge. During the pandemic, all programs are available as online support groups, webinars, or as telephone-based supports via Well on the Web. Visit wellspring.ca to find a center location near you or to access national online programming. Welcome back to About Empathy. That was a really great conversation that we had with Patrick. I think he brought up a lot of points that, you know, you can really unpack. Was there anything that really stood out for you guys when you listened to what he had to say? I liked the ending when he talked about the importance of healthcare providers being patient. That was such an interesting thing that he said that. In my experience, that can be a bit challenging at times, but... It's nice for me to hear that when I do my best to be patient, that I can be having a positive impact. Mm -hmm. Because sometimes when someone is struggling, when they leave the office, you know that they're not in a good place yet. But you being patient might be able to help them get to the next point. Yeah. And that you're really reinforcing the fact that this is a process. Recovery is a process and that there are ups and downs to it. And there'll be good times and then there'll be more challenging times. And that it really is a chronic condition or a chronic disease that at certain points in time will be going well and smoothly and as expected. And there'll be other times where there'll be bumps in the road. And I think that's why you have to be there with someone for the long haul Mm -hmm. and that that patience comes into play. And that first story he told us about where he didn't feel heard when he went to his physician, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that had a big impact on me. It's just a good reminder to us to really try to listen well. And I mean, the idea that you don't have to talk, that we now use pills Mm -hmm. for depression kind of made me sad to hear Mm -hmm. that that was his experience because that's 
that definitely isn't what we want students to be. No, that's so much <laughs> of what you do, Dory. Yeah. I'm like, oh my goodness, that's just, I think it's always talk and maybe sometimes medications, yeah. but it's never medications mm-hmm. alone. It's always talking plus or minus medications for someone who mm-hmm. is worried, depressed or anxious. Mm-hmm. So I think that's really important for our students to know. Yeah, and I feel like that interaction with that particular physician, that physician wasn't meeting Patrick where he was because where Patrick was coming from was, I want to talk to someone. Yeah. So I think they weren't being patient-centered in their approach and they weren't meeting him where he was, which was, I want to talk to someone. And so I think they they didn't meet where Patrick needed to be. Mm -hmm. I mean, we don't know exactly we weren't there. So you Mm -hmm. wonder if sometimes doctor's experiences are, oh my gosh, I never seem to get anyone into counseling when it's covered Uh, by OHIP. So do you know what I mean? Like, I just wish there were more resources for people because the reality is psychologists are amazing, but they aren't covered under OHIP. So it's not not accessible. No, and psychiatrists are so busy that they often are diagnostic and perhaps sending back to the family doctor for the counseling. And that's Mm -hmm. not part of everybody's practice. I mean, they do a lot of counseling, but you know how long it takes to get people into psychiatry. That's a good point. And the idea that they'll see someone every week to talk for an hour, that's just not everybody's experience. That's true. That's such a good point. The advice of being patient is a really good one. But I will say that it's a lot easier said than done, right? I mm-hmm. think Good point. for someone who's early on in practice, if you haven't had a lot of experiences helping people with addictions, it sounds good. But Patrick's very right. You know, when people are facing addiction, when they're struggling with addictions, they're a very different person from who they want to be. And as someone who used to have a practice with quite a number of patients who are struggling with addictions, you see the bad side of it, right? Where the behavior can be threatening or just very maladaptive in a lot of ways and you want to help, but it's hard because, you know, there's this term called countertransference. Their sort of anger or their defensiveness, it just, you can't help but just feel like you're going to have an equal reaction to that. I don't know what's the best advice for that. How did you manage that? How did you make that a healthy therapeutic relationship between you and that individual? I think there's a few things. One is you just kind of have to realize where your own limits are Mm -hmm. and, and set certain boundaries. Because obviously, if you try to help them in every way that they feel like is helpful when they are facing addictions, that's not necessarily what's going to help them. So setting the boundaries, but also making sure that they know that you're there for them, you know, so that you're not going to abandon them, even if there is an interaction that's not particularly, you know, favorable for either of you. And then the other thing I think is universal, because Patrick talked about how finding his tribe, finding his confidants were so helpful for his recovery. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a good path for anyone who's struggling with anything. And at the time I worked in a center where my colleagues were amazing. Like to this day, I just think back on that time really fondly because we were just a bunch of people who felt so strongly about equal access to care for everybody. And, you know, we had a lot of patients with different challenges across the spectrum. And so just knowing that there were other people who 
had similar experiences and being able to bounce off ideas. How do I deal with Mr. So-and-so? Because I'm finding it really challenging with lately how he's been, you know, more threatening or, you know, saying these kinds of things or not really following sort of the agreement that we agreed upon. And then, you know, hearing from other people, they're helping to remind me Hmm. about the fact that addictions is a disease and that people have their good days and their bad days. We can help them in the long term. It's not like a sprint, right? It's really a marathon. Yeah. So it sounds like for you, so as a physician, you found your community of practice. So your community of practice was there to help support you in supporting patients is what it sounds like. Mm -hmm. And then the other side of that, which is what Patrick was talking about, was finding his community and his tribe in terms of where he felt seen and heard and where he felt like his supports were ideal for him. So it sounds like there's both helping the patients and facilitating them finding resources and a community that works for them. But as a healthcare provider, it's also finding your community of practice. Exactly. Because I mean, as much as this podcast is about about empathy, called Mm -hmm. about empathy, and we're trying to put ourselves in someone else's shoes, the bottom line is I will never really know Mm, what it's like to be in the other person's shoes Mm -hmm. until I've actually experienced it. So I think it's helpful to hear the story, but it's also helpful to surround that person with people who really, truly do Mm. understand because that's such a healing and supportive environment to be in. Mm -hmm. And I think you mentioned, Irene, about how Patrick had said that he found a therapist that he really connected with. Mm -hmm. And so that person may be you or maybe the healthcare provider who's listening, but it also might not be. And so your help is potentially as a facilitator, someone who facilitates them finding the right support person at the right time that will meet their needs in the right way. I think when we start off early in practice, sometimes we are a little bit naive and we think that we are responsible. We are the sole person responsible for helping this person, but that's just not the case, right? Mm -hmm. That's not practical and that's also not probably helpful for the patient either. What's the most important thing is being a resource, helping them to navigate the system and help them connect with the people who are going to be able to help them the most. That might be you, but very often it's not. It's going to be somebody else or another group of people. I really enjoyed talking to Patrick. I thought he was insightful and funny and honest, and I'm so glad he spoke to us today. We hope the story that you heard today has inspired you to engage in compassionate, authentic, and empathic interactions. We'll be back next week with another conversation. Subscribe to About Empathy on Apple Podcasts or listen on our website, aboutempathy.com. When you subscribe and rate our podcast, it helps others find us. The episode will be added to your app when we publish. Please share our podcast with your family, friends, colleagues, and health professionals. You can find the notes from today's episode and information about our show on the website. About Empathy is a Kickback Productions podcast hosted by Giovanna Siriani, Dori Sakaracha, and Irene Yang. Recorded and produced by Jackie Skinner with additional production and writing by Laura Takahashi. Music by Jerry Finn and Jackie Skinner. The podcast is recorded on-site at Wellspring and funded by the Sunnybrook Foundation at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre. Visit us at aboutempathy.com.